the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday Message. The Bay Area has a rich diversity of churches and ministries that serve the community in Jesus' name. And here at KFAX, we love to shine a spotlight onto the great things God is doing through the kingdom work of pastors and ministry leaders. Each weekday, a pastor or leader is interviewed, and here on the Sunday Message, we feature a sermon or presentation from that leader to get you better acquainted with churches who will welcome you to worship, and ministry opportunities that invite your involvement. Now, here's the host of the Sunday Message, David Naderhood. And good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Ministry of the Week Sunday Message. This is David Naderhood, and it's my privilege each week at this same time to highlight one of the churches in the Bay Area or one of the ministries that God is using to uh, impact people for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, this week is no exception as we have opportunity to look at First Baptist Church of Sonoma. It's located right downtown in Sonoma on the square on First uh, Street. And First Baptist of Sonoma can be found online, fbsonoma.com. That's the best way to find out some more information as well as hear other sermons, find directions, and learn a little bit more about this uh historical church. It's been there, the building has been there since 1851, as we learned this past week in my interviews with Pastor Ryan, uh, perhaps uh, the oldest Protestant church north of San Francisco. Pretty amazing stuff. Uh, Pastor Ryan is here with us in studio to share a little bit more about First Baptist of Sonoma. So, Pastor Ryan, welcome to the Ministry of the Week. Thank you again, David. It's been uh, a lot of fun getting to know uh, about the ministry that God's called you to, and I wonder if you don't mind, just kind of recap for us a little bit. Uh, I know God's taken you on an interesting journey. We're both PK, so we grew up around mm-hmm. church and preachers, but uh, uh, for you, that didn't, uh, it didn't mean, you know, like I hear from some guys that they felt the call to ministry and somebody told them like when they were two years old, you're going to be a preacher someday, but... That wasn't your story. So recap that for us a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, I even though I came to Christ at a young age and I never had a, a time of, I guess you could say, apostasy falling away, mm-hmm. uh, I did not feel uh, the call to, to minister. Uh, and my dad never pressured me to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. But I can see how the Lord was preparing me for that, even for the church I'm at now, through a series of events, uh, friends in my life who encouraged me to pursue short-term mission trip, and then I did a long-term mission trip, and then I did two years, and at that time I felt called to seminary, during seminary felt definite call to be a pastor, mm-hmm. and so the path was laid, I just didn't see everything at the time, and that's how it's been for me. And that's so rare to actually, I know, uh, you know, uh, sometimes you think the path is really clear ahead of you, and then all of a sudden there's a sharp right turn or whatever, and God yeah. has a wonderful way of doing that. I remember my dad saying to me when I was in high school, uh, and he was a radio preacher, so he's like, now, David, you do whatever God calls you to do, but if you can help it, don't be a preacher. <laughs> I thought, wow, okay, don't worry, Dad. I was planning to do anything but be a preacher and never to work on radio. I mean, I just... That, That's great. You know, and here I am. So, 
make God laugh and tell him all about your plans, right? Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, Pastor Ryan, you've been now at First Baptist Sonoma for uh, almost two years, and you have uh, had an opportunity to kind of get your feet wet in ministry mm-hmm. at a, a, a really old church that has some wonderful traditional music. You said um, if folks came for the first time, uh, they'd get to hear some of those old great hymns, right? Absolutely. They yeah. would hear some of the best from the the Baptist hymnal and from all the centuries up to that composition. Yeah, and as as a as a traditional worship time, um, you also mentioned this past week that you you preach in an expository mm-hmm. way, like through yes. chapter at a time, right? Um, and, and I find that a lot of times people, especially if they're uh, exposed to things just always being new, new, new in the Bay Area, technology and the level of change is just so rapid. Uh, really, let's just Let's speak to the heart of maybe somebody who's listening today who is just needing to rest back in something that's not constantly changing, right? I mean, this is a great invitation for folks to be able to just come and experience uh, the retelling of an old story, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and that's been my prayer. Uh, even in my sermon, I'll begin that way, just that we encounter Jesus anew, uh, that when we hear the preaching of John the baptizer, that we're we're in that story and that the message really hits us as hard as it hit that audience then an opportunity for repentance and to uh, prepare your heart as much as is possible to meet Jesus. And that's both my prayer for anyone hearing and for my congregation and for all people. Amen. Well, and let's do just that. I know we're going to hear a message today from Matthew chapter three about the ministry of John the Baptist and, uh, and, and really the, as Jesus said, the finest of the Old Testament, uh, prophets was there, but anyone who enters the kingdom is even greater than John the Baptist. Amazing statement. What an amazing, amazing. statement, right? Uh, so, Pastor Ryan, if you don't mind, would you just, uh, open us with a word of prayer and then we'll get into the word today? I will. Uh, Father, I just, uh, ask that, Lord, uh, through this medium, through radio, um, that your word is able to be, uh, spread, Lord, to places where before it wasn't possible. And I pray that those that hear the message would not hear a particular voice of a particular man, but they would hear your words, mm. uh, the true God, and they would hear of Jesus Christ whom you've sent, uh, Lord John the Baptist, God who, uh, Lord, says I uh, will become less and he must become greater. I pray that uh, we are prepared and that we understand both the the wonder of receiving Jesus and the hard calling that it is. And yes. I pray that we wouldn't overlook that. And I pray that, God, we would, again, uh, Lord, find salvation. And, uh, God, uh, that the Holy Spirit would, in fact, come upon us, uh, yes, encourage Lord. us that know him and uh, quicken those that have not yet committed themselves. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Ryan, for joining us in studio. And, uh, folks, once again, uh, the message you're about to hear is from Matthew chapter 3, a message uh, delivered not too long ago by Pastor Ryan Rendells. He's the pastor at First Baptist of Sonoma, which is our KFAX Ministry of the Week. If you have a Bible, you will find your way to the book of Matthew chapter 3. We're here at the beginning of the year. We've been looking through... The Gospel According to Matthew. And uh, we find ourselves now at the ministry of John the Baptist. We looked the last four Sundays 
at Jesus, his birth, his origin, the prophecies about him, and now we reach to the preparation right before he was to begin his ministry. You know, if you look at American history going back about 270 years, you know there were a series of great religious awakenings in the United States before it was the U.S., and that there was a guy from England named George Whitfield, who's a very popular preacher, who would have crowds of thousands come to hear him preach. This is before they had the Billy Graham crusade, so that was very unusual to have that many people come outside to hear a preacher speak. Well, George Whitfield came to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and uh, he was preaching to huge crowds, crowds that were greatly moved. And uh, there was a man named Benjamin Franklin, wasn't as well known as he would become 20 or 30 years later, but he was a big fan of George Whitfield. Uh, of course, he never professed the Christian faith himself, despite an upbringing, but he would come and, and watch the sermons. And he would even support some of the ministry that George Whitfield did. But when he first heard Whitfield speak, he said, I swore to myself I would not give any money to his ministry. But after he heard Whitfield preach, he not only gave all the money he had with him, but he took out a loan to support Whitfield's orphanage. He was that much moved by the preaching of Whitfield. But as we'll see, it never ended up coming to a life change for Benjamin Franklin, even though he was moved by the preaching. He was still drawn to that preaching. And when we come to John the Baptist, we see a similar thing. Before Jesus begins his ministry, the fiery preaching of John the Baptist precedes it. John was a prophet commissioned by God to prepare Israel to receive their Messiah. John challenged his hearers to both change their hearts, to examine their lives, and warn the people that just because you were born an Israelite, that was enough, not enough, to be pleasing to God. There needed to be a life change. Those who were disobedient would suffer God's judgment. But John's audience was called to turn from their sin to prepare for Christ. On the other hand, the coming Messiah, Jesus, would baptize the people with the Holy Spirit. The baptism would bring about the transformation that John called for. And uh, as we find ourselves in this story, I think we're called to prepare our own hearts to receive the Messiah and yet have to wait for Jesus to be the one to do that. So I'm going to read here from the first 12 verses of chapter 3. In the days... Those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is at the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Please pray with me. Lord, as we hear the powerful preaching of this prophet, I pray, Lord, that we are prepared to receive the one who's coming after him. I pray that we, Lord, our hearts are softened to hear this message. I pray that as the living word speaks now, Lord, it speaks even though this man has long gone to be in your presence and glory. Lord, the word is active and it's living, and I pray that, Lord, it moves us. I pray that we hear what you would have us to hear, and I pray we're able to understand what this message is and put this into practice. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I'm going to answer a few questions in this text from these 12 verses about John and about his message and about some of the implications. You can follow along and write notes if you like or just remember closely. But let's ask the question and answer it. Who is John the Baptist? It's interesting that the way John starts out, it says he's preaching in Judea. And then it gives a description in verse 4 of his clothing. Now, if you read the Bible, you know that people's physical descriptions aren't usually given. They don't tell us what Jesus looked like. Sometimes we have art that has a depiction of Jesus that usually looks like the best of our culture, if we're honest. Um, We don't know what Abraham looks like. We don't know details about people's faces like we often read in, in novels from different eras. And so when it says something about the clothing that John the Baptist is wearing, we should listen. It's an important detail. Because we'll see that John is a type of Elijah to come. I talked about that briefly last week. We talked about a type, how David represents the people of Israel, how Rachel can represent the mothers of Israel. One person represents a different person or a different idea. Well, here John is like Elijah. And it says that because if you look in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 1, it's during the time when the kingdom of Israel and Judah are split. And Ahab is king. And uh, there is a prophecy that Elijah is supposed to give. And he gives it to some prophets sent from this king. And uh, Elijah tells these men, tell the king he's going to die. And they go back and give the message. And they tell the king, a prophet came to us and told us, this message, you're going to die. And then the king asked, well, what did the guy look like? And it says he was wearing a clothing of camel's hair and a leather belt. So it's very, very important that when Matthew is saying, who is John, we make a connection with Elijah. That's why I had Tom read Malachi chapter 4. Because even the message that John gives is something that was supposed to happen. Malachi is written roughly four to five hundred years before John would come and minister. And so John knows his ministry and knows who he is. It's also interesting that if you look in the Gospel of Luke, we also know that John was prophesied to do great things. 
This is usually a Christmas sermon that you'll hear when it's Zechariah in the temple being told that even his wife in the old age is going to bear a son. And this is what Zechariah says, Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to give light to those who sit in darkness and guide our feet in the way of peace. This is something amazing. John is no normal child. He is a special man appointed by God. And John is a prophet. So who's John? John is a prophet of God. What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks the word of the Lord, not his own words. That's a really important definition for understanding a prophet. Sometimes we think of a prophet as someone who just predicts the future. We say, well, a prophet is someone who says that something will happen, and it does. Now, that is a part of some prophet's ministry. But when you read about the prophets in the Bible, that's not the only thing they do. They're not like fortune tellers that predict the future all the time and that's their full-time ministry. What they do is they guide the people to worship only the Lord. They preach against the temptations of their times. And you know, the prophets in Israel's day were not very popular. You know, guys like Jeremiah only had arguably two converts in their whole ministry. Decades of preaching and you have two guys that follow you. Many of the prophets were persecuted. Uh, That's why Jesus, of course, is called a Nazarene, because he's from a despised part of Israel. And, of course, his ministry will be widely criticized by many people. You would not want your child to be born a prophet if you were looking for a prosperous or favorable life. It would be a very, very hard life. And you can see that right away just from John's clothing and what he lived on. It said he ate locusts and wild honey. He lives in the desert. I remember watching uh, one of those Survivor shows a couple years ago, and uh, one of the guys on there was showing how you could eat crickets. He's like, you get crickets, and uh, you can put them on a little skewer and then roast them, and uh, that's how you eat them. They're a fine animal to eat. And, uh, of course, it's not much. You can barely live on insects. And honey, you can imagine how dangerous that is, and honey usually is in a hive that's located high in a tree. So John is living on a pretty meager diet. Why is that? Surely his parents would let him stay in his house and pay a little rent, provide for him. Why is John eating locusts and wild honey? Well, John's appearance, it's a protest against the extravagance of his day. Remember the Herod, the kingdom that Herod had? Huge temples, luxurious living, self-indulgence and John here is a guy who's in the desert he's distant from the cultured elite he's living off insects and honey and he's preaching in the wilderness he is despised now we might think I don't know what this applies to me or how this applies to me John's a prophet I know it's important I know that prophets in the Bible when when they say something I should listen and uh, we don't think of people today typically being prophets But what's interesting is that in the New Testament, one of the gifts, spiritual gifts given to the church, is people that are called prophets. 
And there are different definitions of of what that is. Some people are confused. They they might say, well, there are full prophets today that do the same ministry as John the Baptist. Uh, but I probably would say that's not the same ministry that God has given Christians today. Uh, we know that Jesus is the final, the final prophet, of course, and the culmination of all the prophets' teachings. But how then can Paul say there are still prophets today? Well, what he means is there are people that are given a gift to speak truth to others that God impresses upon them. Uh, that's why Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 5, don't treat prophecies with contempt. And um, I don't know if you've had people in your life that have spoken a word to you that's come to pass that seemed improbable. I've had that happen in my life. I, I've had people that have told me, you know, you shouldn't do this. I think something bad's going to happen. And I remember thinking, how did you know that? You don't know my life. How can you possibly say that? And that person was absolutely right. And they didn't say, well, I have a special gift. They just said, I felt like the Lord was, was telling me this. And so what Paul tells us when people in the church are gifted in that way, we should listen. Uh, and in some ways, pastors also have that role. Uh, there's a, a man named Richard Sibbs who was a Puritan, and he had a preaching manual, and he called it the art of prophesying. So some of the Puritans would actually call the ministry of preaching prophesying. Because there is a kind of confrontation, there is a word from the Lord, it's not from me and it's not from someone else, but it is from God. And so as a church, we also should be willing to listen to what people say to us. Our, our attitude towards authority, particularly in the Bible, should be one of receptiveness. When we hear what the word speaks, we should not immediately say, I don't want to hear what that guy says, I don't want to hear what the Lord says. I don't want to hear what the Bible says about my life. We need to be ones that say, you know what? There's something here that I don't particularly like or it makes me uncomfortable. But I'm going to listen and I'm going to hear because we know that God often speaks in that way. And we know that those people that love us the most will often confront us at times. And later we know it's because they cared so much for us. So even though we may not have a prophet to the degree of John or in the same way, we still have that kind of prophetic ministry among people in the church. But John, of course, is speaking a very specific message for a very specific place and time because he's preparing the way for Jesus to come. So what is the message this prophet brings? Well, he says it pretty clearly at the beginning of his message. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Sorry, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repentance... Pretty simple. John has a very simple message. Repent. What is repentance? Usually it means two things. It means a turning away from sin and a turning to God. We see in the Bible those things go hand in hand. When someone turns away to sin, they are also turning towards God. They're not just reforming their lives and having God completely out of it. They're turning towards sin and embracing Christ. That's when someone is converted. That's when someone comes to know the Lord. We say they have repentance and faith. They're turning from their sin and also clinging towards Jesus Christ. Now, John has the people not praying a specific prayer, but he's having them be baptized. He says the people came being baptized and confessing their sins. Now, was this the first time that anyone was ever baptized, that John was doing something that no one was familiar with? Well, different sources outside the Bible show us that 
people that wanted to become Jews by embracing the law that God has given and, and, and various things that are in the Old Testament, they would be baptized. So it was not the first time that this had happened. If you were someone who was a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew by obeying what the Lord had said, you would become baptized. It was a sign. And so they'd be dipped in the water and they would come out and that would be a sign of what they have done. Of course, the people here are Jewish, so why are they being baptized? Aren't they already those that are by religion and by birth Jews? Why are they being baptized? I think it shows us something about their commitment. It shows us that they were seeing they had not been living as those who were God's children. And their devotion was such that they were going to be like people who were newly converted. People that had been on the outside and are now on the inside. And these people are coming to John, they're confessing their sins, and they're being baptized by John. Now what's interesting though, is John sees the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees are the teachers of the law. They're the people like the pastors, the elders of churches. They're people that are scholars. They have status. They're respected. And they are coming out to see John baptized. They're going out of the synagogue and they're seeing this guy dressed in camel's hair with bugs in his beard and honey and a leather belt. And they're coming out to see his baptism. And it says that when John sees them, he has harsh words for them. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And then he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I think that's a very key component of John's message. He says, bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Because I don't doubt everybody that was at that baptism would have said, well, I've repented before. I'm here, am I not? I've told God, hey, I'm sorry for what happened. I'm, I'm planning to reform my life. I really believe what you say. But John says you need to keep fruit in keeping with that repentance. So basically, John's saying you need to prove that it's actually real. You know, we can say, oh yeah, I, I had this inner commitment or I said a certain word. But only in our lives and through our actions can we prove if that's real or not. Now, Matthew doesn't give the details we read in Luke's gospel, but in Luke, when John is baptizing people, they come to him and ask him, what must we do? Isn't that interesting? He says, repent, and they don't say, well, that's okay. I I know what that means. They say, what must we do? They know there has to be actions taken to prove this is genuine. And he gives three different groups, three different commands. He says to the whole crowd, he says, the one that has an extra tunic should give to the one that has none, and the one who has extra food should do the same. And then the tax collectors come and they ask him and say, what should we do? And he says, you should not take more than you're allotted. And then it said soldiers came to him and said, what should we do? And he said, you should not extort people falsely, and you should be content with your pay. Now, these were not commands that fit for every person in every era, but they fit for that particular group of people. He was saying, there were things that were idols in your life, and if you're going to be truly one who has repented, this is what it's going to look like. You need to stop extorting people. And do you notice that all those things have something to do with money? 
it looks like the people in that era, much like our own, were showing they had not truly turned from their sin because they weren't sharing with others. They weren't generous. They were hoarding their things. And those in authority were using their power to exploit other people. This is something that's timeless, something that we see even today. The evidence that there's a true turn would be what they did with their money and what they did with their authority. This is so, so critical for us, and it's going to be important as we read through Matthew's gospel, as we examine the teachings in the life of Jesus. Because the things people do really, truly prove what they believe. I used to have a professor that said, uh, you only obey what you believe. And I think it's very true. We see that here in the ministry of John. Time will tell if repentance is real or false. It's more than just saying, I've messed up, or just saying, yeah, I committed a sin. There's many examples in the Old Testament of that happening. Remember Pharaoh, when he has experienced a number of plagues, and they've decimated his country. He tells Moses, when Moses comes into his presence, I have sinned against God. We might think, well... Surely he's he's changed. Pharaoh seems like a changed man. He said it. I was wrong. I had sinned. And he did not say that before. But then what happens? Turns around, says he hardened his heart, and wouldn't let the people go. There was only this time of sorrow over what had happened. But what the sorrow was about was about his country. His country was thrashed. He was sad about that. He wasn't broken because in time it showed that confession was false. We see it also in Saul's life. Remember, Saul is chasing David after Samuel has told him, your kingdom has been taken away from you, given to David. Saul now spends months, even years, pursuing David. At one point, he seeks to kill David. Saul falls asleep. David goes into the camp, has the opportunity to kill Saul, and he does not do it. And then when he goes far away and tells Saul, Saul, I had the opportunity to kill you and I did not do it because you're the Lord's anointed. Then Saul says, David, my son, I have sinned. And then a couple of chapters later, he pursues David again. He tries to kill David again. So we know that Saul had not truly changed because the life did not match that. And that's what John's saying here. You need to give the kind of repentance and we need to have the kind of repentance that is real. And it's demonstrated before God and man. Now, that's not the only thing that John says in his message. His message is about repentance. But secondly, the message is about the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Now, you saw I had a slip earlier. I said the kingdom of God. Uh, I think we can make a pretty good conclusion that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God are, 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 are the same thing. Different name. And I think the reason for that is the kingdom of heaven gives the idea that God reigns over all. Heaven is a term that the Hebrews used to say all the universe. So he's kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, they're the same things. It's the most common term in the entire New Testament. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. What is it? I'll give a definition here. It is God's rule and reign in the hearts of believers that is fully consummated upon Christ's return. Or basically saying, God's rule in your heart and his rule on earth. Now the reason I said 
it's not till Christ's return is because there's a way in which the kingdom reigns when you become a believer. When you confess Jesus Christ, when you say, I want to follow him, the kingdom is in your midst because you now have committed to follow Christ. You follow the king. But there's also a promise that extends to the future. That is when everything and all creation is subject to the lordship of Jesus. That's when there are no more crying and tears. That's when all wickedness is completely stamped out and Satan is destroyed. That is a part of the kingdom that's still to come. So Jesus begins the kingdom ministry. And the reason that we know that has happened is we're going to see things that the Old Testament said would happen. We see healing of sickness. That's prophesied in Isaiah. We see that demons are being cast out. Only God has the power to do that. We see preaching for repentance. That's something all the prophets said would happen. Jesus is doing all the things that show, yes, God's rule and reign has now come. Now, the kingdom is also associated with an Old Testament word, the day of the Lord. You'll see that throughout the prophets, the day of the Lord. Now, for instance, in Amos and in Joel, the people long for the day of the Lord because what they want to see is their enemies destroyed. The Assyrians will be vanquished on the day of the Lord. The Babylonians will be overthrown in the day of the Lord. But the prophets give a surprising message. They said, you should not be glad about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is weeping for you because they're not ready. They're not spiritually prepared. The day of the Lord is a time of both grace and judgment. Because God will render each person according to what they have done. And so when you long for the day of the Lord, just like we long for the return of Christ, there's an excitement about it. And there's also a sober side of it. A side in which we want to know, will I be able to stand before the Lord? Will I be able to confidently come into His presence? Or will I be ashamed when He returns? And I believe the day of the Lord is something that we should be happy for and at the same time prepare ourselves in great humility for that day. And that's what John is telling to his people. Salvation is here is one of the implications. Salvation is here. Like I said, Jesus will usher in the kingdom and he says the Holy Spirit will come and baptize you and with fire. It's a time of grace. It's a time when Satan is being attacked. It's a time of healing. It's a time to rejoice. When we see Jesus, we're excited. John's giving baptism of repentance for sins. And this is the positive side of his message. It's a time for the poor to be lifted up. It's a time for those that are broken over their sin to be healed. It's a time for those oppressed by demons to be completely freed of that oppression. In that sense, the time, the beginning of the kingdom, is a time when salvation is here. It's a time of grace. And the fact is that we are in that era. We are in that state of grace. As the church now continues to proclaim the gospel, as missionaries go all over the world, they are giving this message and saying, enter the rest that God promises. Find healing. Find wholeness. Find forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus is king. And you know what? The kingdom has begun to reign, but at the end, there will be judgment and terror. And that's the second side of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven that John tells us. Judgment is imminent. Salvation is here, 
but judgment is imminent. It's going to come no matter what. John preaches a good sermon. Uh, and the reason that it's a good sermon is it's a balanced sermon. You know, I don't know how many sermons you listen to in your life or how many churches or preachers. But uh, there's a tendency to, to make mistakes by, by falling in two categories of people. You don't want to fall completely into one or the other. And one group is one that preaches only fire and brimstone. Maybe some of you Southern Baptists from times past would hear preachers like that, where it was just a, a sermon to scare people into heaven, so to speak. Uh, a sermon only of judgment and wrath and hell and Satan. And some churches are like that. And that's not giving the complete gospel. It's not just about that. On the other hand, there are people that avoid the subject altogether. They only preach of love and mercy and they avoid the judgment. They don't warn their hearers about what God has clearly promised. But John gives both sides. He doesn't say, well, I don't want to talk about hell because it's going to make you uncomfortable. But he also doesn't say, I'm just going to talk about it so you get scared and you're manipulated into making a commitment. No, he gives both things. He says, yes, One is coming greater than me who's going to give you the Holy Spirit, baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. At the same time, those that do not bear fruit, there is judgment to come. You know, when John reminds us that hell is a real place and that its duration is eternal and that all those living should flee to Christ and be saved from it. You know, and John is alluding to passages in Isaiah 66 and Isaiah 34 when it talks about the worm not dying and the fire not quenched. John knows his readers know the Old Testament. He doesn't avoid that topic. It reminds us that despite how uncomfortable hell may be for us and the fact that it's eternal, as the Bible teaches, we need to not avoid that. It really is a true incentive to come to Christ. You can't be scared into the kingdom, and yet the stakes are so high. Uh, the gospel message is, is so important when people hear it. It's not something you can just cast to the side and think, well, take it or leave it. Despite it coming from people that are not esteemed in their culture, it's something that we must remember. The stakes are high when we hear preaching and when we hear the message of Jesus. And John's telling us that. Now, finally... John tells his people, do not say to yourself or presume to yourselves to say, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We are warned not to trust in things like our heritage. Can't say, well, I come from a long line of of pastors like myself. Can't say that I have been a Baptist or I've been a Presbyterian or I've been Methodist for so many generations. I can't say, well, because I was baptized as an infant, like many people say in many countries, that makes me a Christian. I can't say, because I'm an American, that I'm okay with God. I was reading a biography on Dwight L. Moody, uh, who did most of his ministry in the 1800s, and he was a chaplain for the Union Army in the Civil War. And at one point, he was going onto the battlefields, a very dangerous job, to speak to dying soldiers about the gospel. And in fact, he had many opponents. He had people that were Unitarians. And uh, they basically were saying, why are you trying to tell people to trust in Jesus? They're good American patriots. Of course they're going to heaven. And he, of course, 
rejected that completely and said, you cannot believe that. That is not what it's going to take. Yet in every era, countries that have a Christian background somehow put those two together. To be a good American is to be a Christian. Or to be a good German is to be a Christian. Or to be an Englishman is to be a Christian. And they're kind of the same thing. Being a good citizen is the same thing as entering the kingdom. And yet clearly that's not the case. Because these people have a better pedigree than you and I have. They are from Abraham's offspring. And here they say, don't trust in that. We are warned to watch our lives and doctrines closely. So I want to conclude with a question. Will you be purified by the fire of the Holy Spirit's cleansing or will you be chaff winnowed out and burned? You know, John the baptizer and his message reveals something important about receiving Jesus. We're getting ready to, to hear the teachings of Jesus, ready to look at his life, ready to find ourselves in that story. And it's telling us through John's preaching, we have a responsibility to prepare ourselves to receive what he's teaching. Now, this may in, appear to conflict with the Bible's insistence salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it is. John knows this. And yet at the same time, he's telling his people, if you're ready to receive the Lord, it's going to mean a commitment on your part. It's going to mean a change prepared to receive the teaching he is going to give. And I think it's, it's a paradox. It's things that seem contradictory that are both definitely true. And I think sometimes when John's saying repent... And he's saying, do particular things to demonstrate that you have truly trusted in the Lord. I think of when I'm driving on the road. And if I'm driving straight and I look down my phone or something else, I start to drift. I may be confident that I am driving straight. But when my eyes are off, I start to drift and go that way. And I think the fact is that when you have true belief in God, that... Just like the car follows where your eyes are going, your lifestyle is going to follow that. They're so closely tied. That's why when Zacchaeus is called by Jesus, he immediately, upon believing in Christ, says, Behold, I give half my possessions to the poor. He knows what is at stake here, and he's willing to do that. John is saying the same. If you really believe this, there are the implications, and you're going to have to discern what those are. But the good news about this too is not that you just have to shape it and change yourself. There's a promise that Jesus will come and give you the Holy Spirit. And that makes us able to follow him in discipleship. That's when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. We can say, this is the way we're supposed to live. And we can do this, even impartially, even imperfectly, because Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. And that's the good news about the teaching of John. That promise is for renewal and healing and for the beginning of the kingdom. So please pray with me. Uh, Lord, we, God, we just thank you for the message of this great preacher, this bold preacher, this man who would later die for what he spoke. It was costly, Lord. But Lord, the gospel has always been costly. The prophetic ministry has always been hard, but it's worth it. And I pray, Lord, that everyone here is ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I know some of us have been believers for, for many years. But I pray the ministry of John hits us hard. Reminds us, God, of 
the life that we're supposed to live if we believe in the Savior. And I pray this would happen. I pray we would commit ourselves to Him. And I pray we would find the healing that's promised. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.